Well, if you want to understand the story of the scriptures, no matter your spiritual background, whether you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus or not, or if you're not really sure where you stand in relationship with Jesus, that one of the best things to do to understand what the Christian story and message is about is to understand the major players, the major figures in the story that has been recorded and handed down to us in the scriptures. Last week, we began the study of the life of one of the major, major figures of God's story in this world, and that is this man, Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, and through faith in Jesus the father of all of us spiritually in many ways as well. And we saw last week that the twin themes of Abraham's life are that God makes gracious promises to him and then calls Abraham to respond in the journey of faith. And those are some of the reasons why Abraham's story is so meaningful and hopefully so resonant with each of our stories. God makes gracious promises to each one of us and calls us to respond as well in the journey of faith. We saw his story begin last week in Genesis chapter 12. God, out of nowhere, sovereignly made promises to Abraham and calls in Abraham to trust him. We saw that Abraham did initially trust in God. He believed that God would make him a father even though he was an old man and his wife Sarah was barren. He believed that he would be a blessing to all the nations. But things went south for Abraham. In the second part of Genesis 12, when he went down into Egypt because of a famine and there really gave up his wife Sarah to be a part of Pharaoh's harem. He told the people that Sarah was his sister to save his own skin. We saw that Despite Abraham's tragic failure at the end of Genesis 12, God was gracious. God did not cast him out and start all over. God sticks with Abraham, just like God sticks with us when we fail, when we royally mess up. This week, as we continue Abraham's journey, we see that he's making his way back out of Egypt into the land that God had promised to give him and his descendants. That's a very good thing. And yet almost immediately... There's another test for this man. There's more tension and conflict. He encounters another roadblock in the journey of faith, you might say. How will he respond to conflict even within his own family? How will he respond to his failures in Egypt? Let's look and see this morning what the Spirit has to say to us as he speaks to us sovereignly through this ancient story. Here's the main idea of Genesis chapter 13 as we continue our studies of the life of Abraham. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight so that we may experience the blessings of God. There you have it. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight so that we may experience the blessings of God. Three big points underlying that main idea. First, we're going to see that Abraham walks by faith and repentance. Second, Abraham walks by faith. Lot walks by sight. Third, Abraham walks by faith into God's blessing. Repentance, Abraham versus Lot, and then Abraham walking into God's blessing. There's your outline for you type A note takers. Here we go. Point one, Abraham walks by faith and repentance. We see that in verses one through seven. And particularly as we read sort of the geographical portion of those early verses of chapter 13, what we see is that Abraham is intentionally retracing 
his steps that had led him down into Egypt, where things literally and spiritually went south for him. He makes his way back up through the Negev, which is the wilderness and the southern part of the promised land. And Moses, the author of Genesis, very intentionally lays out for us a geographic reversal. He's telling us here that Abraham is willingly reversing course. Abraham is seeking to set things right, coming out of the dark experience and sin of Egypt. If you could map it out, not just on literal terrain, but in Abraham's spiritual life, you could summarize his actions here with one word, and that word is repentance. Repentance is what we see taking place in Abraham's life. He is here turning away from the place of his rebellion and failure and returning to the place of blessing and promise. Marianne and the kids and I were in Colorado about a month ago for a week. And as you know, if you've been to Colorado, you can take all kinds of hikes and mountain trails, which we didn't do because... I don't like hiking that much, and because I could barely breathe just by standing there, much less hiking. We hope to do that someday. But um, when you go on one of these trails, for most of these trails, you know, there's one way in and there's one way out. One way up the mountain to enjoy whatever scenes are up there that I haven't personally seen, but I'm sure they're beautiful. And then to get back, you've got to turn around and go right back the way you came. You could picture Abraham's life at this point like that. He had made a trip south into Egypt on a one-way road to peril. And yet here we find him turning around and going exactly back the way he came. Repentance in often, oftentimes in our lives looks like that. It looks like turning around and going back. Back to God. Back to his favor. Back to his blessing. It's proven for us, if we're not convinced just by the geographical points of the narrative, that Abraham is acting in repentance in verse 4. We read that he returns there to the place where he had made an altar at the first, back in chapter 12, and there he called upon the name of the Lord, we read. So Abraham returns to Canaan, and the first thing he does is worship. He worships. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham's worship here is proof of his repentant heart. There were multiple mentions of altars and worship in the first half of Genesis 12 last week. But then when Abraham went down to Egypt, all all idea and all language of worship and altars and calling on God's name, it was gone. Abraham went radio silence on us for a while in Egypt. And yet significantly, we return, when he returns to Canaan, we see the first thing he does as a result of his repentance is worship God. Now, Last week, we saw that God does not cast us aside when we fail. God does not cast us aside when we screw up royally. That's one of the main purposes of Abraham's story. It's an important truth to let simmer in your own heart. And yet, we also should learn this equally important truth. Listen, when we get a taste of God's grace and forgiveness... The only appropriate response is to turn from sin in repentance, not to continue in sin. That's what we see from Abraham here. And so the question that this story is pressing on each one of us this morning is, is repentance taking place in your life? Let me ask it like this. How do you know if you understand and believe in the gospel? 
One answer is to ask, am I regularly repenting of sin? A refusal to repent or acknowledge sin shows a misuse and misunderstanding of the mercy and grace of God. You know, imagine you parents with small children. This probably isn't too hard of a story to imagine. Purely hypothetical, I promise. But imagine that, say, your children get in trouble by, say, coloring with markers all over the white couch. And let's say that you tell them to stop doing that. And rather than disciplining them in that moment through some sort of significant punishment, banning them to their room, not letting them play Pokemon Go, whatever it might be, you choose to show your child grace. You simply say, I'm, I want you to know that this is wrong. You've disobeyed your mother and your father, and I'm disappointed in you, but because I love you, I'm going to show you grace in this instant and let you continue to wander the neighborhood aimlessly looking for Pokemon. And, and then imagine the next day, you come home after your wife or your husband has cleaned up the mess, and you see your children doing the exact same thing again, marking beautiful drawings, I'm sure, all over the couch with their markers. That is a great example of how oftentimes we fail to appropriate God's grace and forgiveness to us when we continue to presume upon him in sin, in rebellion, showing a child grace after they sin and then seeing them go right off and do the exact same thing again is proof that the child has not understood fully how much mercy you have shown to them. And it's the same with our relationship with God. What do you need to turn away from in repentance this morning? In what areas of your life do you need to trust again in God? And as Proverbs says, lean not on your own understanding. Abraham walks by faith in repentance. And thus, so should we. We see, secondly, that Abraham walks by faith, whereas his nephew Lot walks by sight. And we find that particularly in verses 8 through 13. Abram repents and returns to the Lord, Yet that does not mean the end of conflict. That's a lesson for us, by the way. Obedience to God does not mean conflict diminishes. Rather, oftentimes it means conflict is on the horizon. And that's what we see here. Abram and Lot have both gotten very, very wealthy during their time in Egypt. That's what the author tells us there in verses 5, 6, and 7. And because there's so much possessions, there's so many herds and flocks and tents, the land can't hold both of them. And so in verse 7 we read that there is strife between the retinue of Abraham and the retinue of Lot between those respective herdsmen. And here we approach really the main idea or the main point of the passage this morning. Think about this. What are Abraham's options at this point? Given the strife that he and his people are experiencing with Lot and Lot's people. Well, Abraham, you know, behind door number one, Abraham can exercise his rights as the head of household as the paterfamilias, you might say. He can exercise his rights as Lot's leader and put down his authority, and really, you know, he can smash Lot if he wants to. Abraham is Lot's uncle. Abraham is the head of the family. And further, if you want to spiritualize it, it is to Abraham that God has made the promise to give this land, right? Not to Lot, to Abraham. Lot has just tagged along. Abraham has the seniority Abraham has the right to the choice of land on a sociocultural and on a theological level. It would have been well within Abraham's rights and completely legitimate for Abraham to claim whatever he wanted as his own and said, Lot, you take whatever's left, right? 
But what do we see instead? In verse 8, we see that Abram says to Lot, let there be no conflict or strife between us and between our people and your people, for we are kinsmen, or a better translation, we are men, brothers. Abraham, listen, Abraham does not press his seniority to his advantage. Abraham doesn't insist here on his own rights. And here's the key question, why not? Why? What is driving Abraham's behavior here? Well, it's simply this, faith in the promises of God to him. You see, his trust in God's promise gives him freedom from having to control everything. You can think about it like this. Abraham, to use Paul's language in 2 Corinthians 5, walks by faith here. Lot, on the other hand, walks by sight. Look at Lot for a minute. He's presented clearly as a foil or as a contrast to Abraham on a narrative plot level. Notice verse 10 of chapter 13. We read, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw what? That the Jordan Valley was beautiful. It's well watered. It's like Eden. This is immaculate land that Lot sees. It's fertile land. It will be economically vibrant for Lot and for his family. On an economic scale, the decision is a no-brainer for Lot. And yet, in a very subtle way, the story shows us that Lot's decision is very short-sighted. In fact, it is foolish, despite the earning potential of the land. Where do we see that? Well, in that phrase in verse 10, where Moses says that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw, we're reminded of another time, very early in the scriptures, a few chapters before this chapter, where the same author, Moses, in the same book, Genesis, talks about a woman who looked upon a piece of fruit, Eve, in the garden. And there Moses says that she looked at the fruit and saw that it was delicious and looked good for the stomach, and she took the fruit and she ate. That's the similar language that's being used here of Lot. He sees only what he sees, you might put it. It harkens back to Eve's foolish decision in the garden. But even more importantly, in this context itself, there's, you know, there's blinking red lights <laughs> all over this passage. For example, in verse 10, we read, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, almost sort of as a parenthetical aside. And then we read it again in verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. That is, Moses is trying to tell us that Lot has completely ignored the spiritual climate of the place that he chooses to dwell in. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw, you might say, but he didn't really see. He saw the advantages, but not the dangers. He saw the perks of the place, but not the perils. There are hints of disaster throughout these verses, and we'll see later that disaster indeed does come. Abraham acts wisely. He makes a choice to lay down his rights, you see, in faith. Lot acts foolishly and makes a choice to advantage himself at the expense of his uncle and at the expense of his own spiritual vitality. Remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? I love that movie. Great 90s flick. They just don't make many movies like that anymore. The new Indiana Jones was not very good. But anyway, this one's great. Sean Connery, Harrison, great movie. And towards the very end, you know, they're searching for the Holy Grail, which as your pastor, I would not recommend you trying. 
Um, they search for the Holy Grail and they finally find it. They get into the room and there's the Knights Templar in there and the bad guys in there with Indiana Jones. And there's cups everywhere. You remember that scene? All these golden chalices and silver cups and the knight. And, you know, classic understatement. You know, says, you know, you, you're going to make, make want to make a, the wise choice here. And so the bad guy picks the right, you know, he picks what he thinks is the Holy Grail. And he takes a big drink from it. It's this big golden opulent, ornate cup. And he tastes the wine. He's like, I'm sure it's wine and not grape juice, but that's a different sermon. He tastes that and thinks, you know, this, this is great. And then, you know, th- bad things happen. He melts. And the knight sort of deadpan looks at Indiana Jones and says, he chose poorly. Obviously, right? And then uh, Indiana Jones, it's his turn to choose. And rather than picking the big, immaculate, ornate, um, chal- uh, you know, jewel-engraved, cup. He picks the small little wooden cup that's kind of back behind all the other ones and drinks and ends up, I guess, living forever. I don't know how the story ends. But um, the knight says, you've chosen wisely. You know, the point, other than that just being a great scene, and that's a good enough point in and of itself. Other than being a great scene, it's, it's that oftentimes it's through humility. It's through what we don't see on the surface that the path of wisdom lies. As one commentator put it, the social superior, Abraham, humbles himself before the inferior to preserve peace, thereby proving himself the spiritual superior. So Abraham is willing to lay down his rights. He's willing not to press his natural advantages because he's acting in faith and acting wisely. What does that mean for us? Let me just give you a couple of points by way of application here for a moment. Abraham shows each of us that when we are living with faith in God, first of all, we can let go of the illusion and really of the curse of trying to be in control. Abraham believes here that God is going to take care of him. So, because he believes that, he doesn't have to insist on his way with Lot. He doesn't have to micromanage or engineer this situation. You know, don't we face similar situations all the time? There's a couple examples. Um, Why do we try as parents to concoct and engineer external obedience from our children as if we are the ones that can change their hearts? You know, you you parents ever have, this is probably just me uh, that has this experience. You know, when you're saying, you're going to be sorry. I'm going to make you sorry for that sin. You know, as if we can like, produce sorrow and true spirit-wrought contrition in the hearts of our children. We can't do that. But so often as parents, we try to force that on them. We try to engineer their heartfelt obedience, and what we're really doing is exasperating them. Listen, you cannot change other people. You cannot change their heart responses. That's the work of God the Holy Spirit. Yes, you should discipline your children. And God uses your love of them as a means to do his work of heart change. But so often in relationships, we try to engineer the outcome we want with our kids, with our spouse, with whoever. That's acting like Lot, you see, not like Abraham. Another example. Why are some of us such perfectionists? I mean, not all of us, I know, but some of us. That's a huge subject, but it's relevant here. I I think part of the reason for that is because we are, in essence, seeking to control everything in our lives so that we can avoid feelings of loss. 
when, he, when we act in a way that is perfectionistic. Uh, the author and researcher Brene Brown has written a lot of good stuff on perfectionism. And at one point she writes this. Perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfectly, and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. But it doesn't work out. In fact, it makes us more neurotic, more anxious, more controlling, less pleasant to be around. Both of those examples are practical ways in which you and I oftentimes try to control things. But faith, you see, lets us, it lets us give that futile effort up. It reminds us that we can trust God. We can give up the fool's errand of engineering our lives to protect or promote ourselves. God is trustworthy. So we can let go of the illusion of trying to control everything when we are resting in God by faith. A second piece of application here, okay? Just like trust in God releases us from control, trust in God, a life of faith, also frees us to be generous and peaceable. Faith is what enables people to live in a conciliatory way, you see. I mean, Abraham is exceedingly generous to Lot here, right? I mean, he gives up his rights. And why does he do that? He does that because the rock that his life is built on is not the rock of acquiring more and more for himself. His identity is not in these things. The rock his life is built on, rather, is the sure and unshakable promise of God to him. And so because of that, he can be open-handed with everything else. The things that we want to cling to so tightly, our rights, our money, our reputations. Listen, do you struggle to forgive those who have wronged you and look after their own interests first at your expense? Do you struggle with that? It's understandable if you do. I think most of us do. Listen, the way to move forward is through making peace even when you have rights, because you trust that God will take care of you and provide. Do you struggle to part with money, with valuables, with hard-earned time and possessions? Listen, that too is understandable. The way to grow in generosity is to have your identity based in the loving promises of God to you and for you, not in what you make or what you have achieved. Not in how much is in your bank account or in what others think about you. Thomas Merton writes, People spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Isn't that true so often? When we find ourselves fighting for control, control over our stuff, control over who's offended us, control over how we're going to be perceived, control over the outcome of this week, of today, of the next five minutes. Faith in God means learning over time to let go of these things because God's promises are much more dependable than our efforts to micromanage all of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. God's calling us to press into faith like Abraham here, and to resist seeing only with our physical eyes like Lot. Third, Abraham walks into God's blessings. So Lot takes the better land, 
from a human standpoint in a way. But spiritually, as we're going to see soon, he goes awry. Abraham, on the other hand, trusts God and lays down his rights. And we see finally that God comes to him again in verse 14. And God here reconfirms his promises to him. And interestingly, he tells Abraham to lift up his eyes. Lift up your eyes of faith, as it were. And look at the place where you are in every direction. All the land that you see, I will give to you and to your children forever. He reconfirms the promise and he amplifies and extends the promise. And then Abraham literally walks into God's blessing here. As he walks around the land and looks in every direction, he sees by faith what God will one day give to him. If you study this passage, you'll see that the commentators talk about what Abraham is doing here parallels what ancient kings in the Near Eastern world would do in their realms. From time to time, maybe after a battle or a war has just been won and they've conquered more territory, their general or their secretary of state or whoever would take them out and they would literally walk the boundaries of their territory. It's a, it's a monarchical thing. It's a, a royal thing. And so it's as if God is saying to Abraham, Abraham here, take a look at what is coming to you by my gracious promises. Go ahead. Walk around in it. Go ahead, you know, give the car a test run. This is all going to be a part of your family's inheritance one day soon. Remember, these promises to Abraham, remember, at this point, God's promises to Abraham go beyond any reasonable expectation that Abraham might have. They go beyond any normal circumstances that Abraham might expect. Abraham is a 75-year-old man with a wife that can have children. And God has said, you will have as many descendant as there are pebbles of dirt in the Middle East. Abraham is a nomad with no home. And yet God will grant to him all of this land. And Abraham, by faith, believes. That's why the author of Hebrews, much later in the Bible, tells us about Abraham. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. What a great reminder. Abraham's story is to us that God for his people will do more than all we can ask or imagine according to his riches for us in the gospel. What a great reminder to us that when God makes promises that seem outlandish in their graciousness, we can be fully assured and guaranteed that he will fulfill and keep his promises. And we all that know that this is true because we have the privilege of looking at this story from the other side of the cross, from the other side of the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, we know that God kept his promise to Abraham because we ourselves, each one of us, if we believe the gospel, are the fruit of that promise. We are Abraham's descendants by faith, as we read in Galatians chapter 3. All who believe are the children of Abraham. And we also inherit what God promised to Abraham here. And listen, we're not just going to inherit a little piece of real estate somewhere in Palestine or Israel. The promise is much 
broader than that. It's much more significant than that. We inherit all things in Christ. We inherit the new heavens and the new earth, the kingdom of God, which all things, which will make all things new and which one day will come to us when Jesus returns. As we read elsewhere in the New Testament, all things are yours, Paul says. Whether the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So we see here, just to sum and wrap things up, that Abraham walks by faith. He walks by faith in repentance. He walks by faith in being willing to lay down his rights in this conflict with Lot. And he walks by faith in his reception of God's promises. As we read and marinate on his story, God too is calling us to walk by faith, to walk in repentance, to rest in the security that God's promises bring and to trust and believe that he will do what he has said. Can you trust God to do those things for you? This summer we spent a lot of time at the pool and uh, one thing that I've always enjoyed doing with my kids, especially when they're a little bit smaller and aren't quite able to swim yet, is to have them get up on the side of the pool and jump in, and I will catch them. And Marianne and I love doing that. It's so fun to watch them do that. And, you know, if you've experienced this as a parent, you might know that sometimes uh, the children might be a little bit nervous or hesitant to immediately jump in the water. And so let's just think about it from that perspective for a second as we conclude. Assume that you have your three-year-old standing at the edge of the pool, and, and Daddy holds out his arms to him and says, Jump, I'll catch you. I promise. Now, how does the child make Daddy look good in that moment? Answer, trust him and jump, right? Have faith in Dad and jump. That makes dad look strong and dependable and wise and loving. But if the child won't jump, if the child shakes his head or her head and runs away from the edge, daddy doesn't look so great. It looks like you're saying, he can't catch me, or he won't catch me, or it's not a good idea for me to do what he tells me to do. It doesn't always mean that, but generally that's what it means. And all three of those things don't make dad or mom look so great. But if we're going to make our father look great, we should trust him. We should believe that he is dependable and jump by faith into his arms, knowing that he's there. When we trust God in that way, when we express our faith in him by being willing to jump forward in the journey, just like Abraham did in this story, we are making God look great. Making God look glorious. We're saying trusting God is important He's worthy of my trust. He's worthy of my adoration. He will catch me. Will you trust him in that way today? Let's pray.